are now in Genesis 17. We're going to have a hard time making progress we had a blizzard and a couple of guest speakers and other things going on, so it's taken us about about six or seven weeks to get through chapter 16. But we did it. We finally finished it uh, the last time we were together, which was two weeks ago. And uh, we are now ready to start chapter uh, 17. Before we read chapter 17, just real briefly, this won't take a lot of time on this, but uh, briefly, uh, what have we been talking about in chapter 16? The birth of Ishmael, okay. What else? <laughs> well, we did talk about that. There are, there are some aspects of that which don't sound real promising, but in her context, the Hagar is a slave. So, Well, uh, oftentimes in Scripture, the idea of East uh, communicates the idea of, of someone who's living apart from the presence of God or away from the presence of God. So we saw that, uh, we saw that, like you say, when Adam and Eve left the garden and they went out to the East. We saw it with, uh, with the migration uh, after Noah when the people migrated to the East and down to Shinar and there's several other places we come across that idea. So... Uh, we see it with Lot, and Lot moves to the east and kind of moves away from the presence of God. So it has that sense to it oftentimes in Scripture. And and although it's not really explicit here that that's what's going on, I kind of see that behind that too, that, that this is not a guy who's going to live in fellowship with God. Yeah.
Yeah, and we'll talk about that some more today. That's clearly what Abraham did, or Abram did, and it led to all kinds of complications and difficulties. But God turns it to good, and He uses and He and He turns it into a blessing, but but not without a great deal of pain and anguish on Abram's part, and Sarai's part, and Hagar's part. Okay. okay. Anything else you want to bring up? You had something on the tip of your tongue there. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We have this Egyptian woman. You know, here she are. She here she is. She's just a slave in Egypt. <clears throat> she has no idea that God is working. Transfers her from Egypt to this house of this nomad from Canaan, and she gets taken off to Canaan, and and she's just swept away in it. And the whole thing, she has no idea that behind it all is the providence of God. Come on in, make yourself at home. We we are always careful to leave the front seats for the people. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> but uh, so here, here God has had His eye on this woman, this pagan woman, and eventually she comes to know and worship and love this thing. She discovers that she wonderful chapter is Ruth uh, and Gabriel and Chris. At the end of... Oh, excuse me. Yeah. And we'll talk about that here in just a minute, some more. That is a distinct possibility. Necessary now for Israel to reach maturity before he can be sent out from the home. Okay? And, uh, so, and it's very clear that God does not want to do some clear as we go through the story. God doesn't want Israel around as Isaac is growing up, so he sends him out. But he couldn't do that until he reaches an age in which he's safe uh, within the culture and within the environment to do that. And so it's very possible that an able to Precipitate the promise of God to us in the of delay. And that's necessary for God to Well, let's pick it up in chapter 17. And, and uh, chapter 17 really is a whole. Uh, and uh, so I want to read the whole chapter, but we're only going to look at the first few verses of it today. But I want you to kind of get the story as we go forward. Verse 1 of chapter 17. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and, talked, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name will be Abraham. For I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. 
I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you (coughs) and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. God said further to Abram, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout the generation. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the price of your foreskin, which shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight years old shall be circumcised throughout your generation. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with money and from any foreigner, uh, from any foreigner and who is not one of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be the name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she will be a mother of nations, kings, and peoples will come from her. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man a hundred years old, and will Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him, and I will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. When he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all the servants who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day as God had said to them. Abraham was 99 years old and he was circumcised in the foreskin. And Ishmael his son was 13 years old and he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the very same day, Abraham was circumcised and Ishmael his son. All the men of his household who were born in the house and bought with money, some were foreigners, were circumcised with him. Okay. Well, just uh, by way of uh, introduction, I just want you to notice a couple things about the chapter, particularly about uh, the portion of the chapter which constitutes basically what we might think of as God's speech to Abraham or God's declaration of to Abraham. Uh, and and uh, there are a couple things about it that uh, I would like to point out. Is, as far as the structure is concerned, uh, verses 1 and 2 and the first part of verse 3 uh, kind of seem to be basically an introduction. 
Moses records the narrative for us here to give us what appears to be basically whether or not the events of verses 1 and 2 and 3 are, are separate and distinct events from what follows, or whether they are a basically a summary statement of what follows in verse 3. Uh, follows verse three. I, I'm not really clear, uh, but it does seem to serve basically as an introduction. But then we pick up what's interesting is that, that God's uh, speech here, if you will, or his statement of the covenant uh, comes in three parts, and the three parts are easily distinguished. It begins in verse 4 with the phrase, As for me, behold my covenant is with you. And then if you go down to verse 9, uh, it says, For further to Abraham, Now as for you, and then he begins to discuss what Abram's responsibilities are in the covenant. And then when you get to verse 15, it says, As for Sarah. So there are three kind of markers, if you will, that, uh, that kind of separate this narrative and this declaration of the covenant. And they identify the three chief participants in the covenant. That is God and Abram and Sarah. And, and he begins his section of each one by saying, as for me, meaning as for God, and then as for you, meaning as for Abram, and then as for Sarai, uh, uh, and, and then he details the things that pertain to his wife. Uh, the other thing I want you to notice in this chapter that's interesting is this chapter is all about new names. We're introduced to three new names in this chapter. What are they? Okay. First one, obviously, is Abraham. Abram's name is changed to Abraham. Okay. That's another one. Sarah. Okay. Sarai's name is changed to Sarah. So we won't get to that part until next week. There's another new name. What is it? Pardon? No. Well, actually, it is. So there's four new names. So, so we don't. We don't. New names. But there's another one, a very important one. God Almighty. Okay? Uh, and so we'll talk about that again. So there's just a couple things that I want to point out to remind you that this chapter comes to full, even though we're going to take it probably in about two weeks. Uh, it, it really is a whole seal of the whole. So as we begin the chapter, Abram is what? How old is he? Ninety-nine. So how long has it been since I last encountered it? Thirteen years. Right at the very end there, chapter 15, he was three was born to him. So now we just, between the end of chapter 16 and the first part of chapter 17, we pass forward 13 years. When we get to the end of chapter 17, he will still be 99 years old because then all the events of chapter 17 happen in one day. So all chapter 17 is in reference to one day's events. So at the end of chapter 17, he's, uh, he's 99 years of age. We go forward then to uh, chapters 20, uh, 21, chapter, chapter 21, about the middle of chapter 21. When Isaac is born, is a year later. So 
So we fast forward between the end of 16 and first part of 17, we fast forward 13 years. It's totally fine. We fast forward 13 years. But from this point, over the next uh, four or five chapters, three or four or five, four chapters or so of Genesis, it's all going to transpire within one year. So we're going to get a very close perspective on this year in Abram's life, very eventful year in the life of Abram, the whole story of Sodom and Gomorrah and all this stuff goes on. But Abram is 99 years old now. It has been 13 years since Ishmael was born. And during this 13 years, he has apparently no encounters with God. We don't know of any times when God spoke to him or said anything to him or whatever. It's just 13 years of waiting. Now, does Abram know he's waiting? Okay, he has Ishmael. And it's clear from this passage uh, that we just read that he thinks Ishmael is the fulfillment of God's promise. And I was thinking about that. Here he's got 13 years, and, and Ishmael's grown up, so all, many of you know what it's like okay, to raise a boy. 15 years, you know, it's quite an adventure, you know, and he's been going through this adventure of raising his son, and he has convinced himself, not because he's heard from God, but he has convinced himself that this child is the fulfillment of God's promise. How did he come about getting this child? By his own means, okay? So he had the promise of God. He knew what God wanted. He knew what God was intending to do in his life. But he decided, with the help of his wife, that the two of them conspired together and they figured out a way that they could secure the promise of God by the arm of flesh. And so they secure what they think is the promise of God. And for 13 years now, they have Ishmael. But it's 13 years of silence. It's not that God does not intend now because they blew it. It's not that God doesn't intend to fulfill his promise to them. But it just struck me how unsatisfying that must have been, those 13 years. To have, a, to have this son and to, and, and to think that he's, that he's the fulfillment of the promise of God, but to see no evidence of that in his life, either in the child's life or in Abram's own experience. And I was just, I was thinking how, how many times in our own lives we, we know what God wants to do and we know what God wants to accomplish, but somehow we just feel like we've got to do it ourselves. We've got to crank it out in the flesh. And I was just thinking, yesterday I was meditating on how unsatisfying that is when we do that. Have you ever noticed that? When you, when you, when you, you, you just, you know God wants to do something, and, but you can't wait for Him. So you just do it yourself. And you convince yourself that it's of God, but it really isn't. Yeah, there probably was, there probably was some tension. And I just think it's a lesson to us of 
Learning to be patient and wait on God. It's the only way to really be happy. It's the only way to really have the sense of God's blessing in our lives. And so all this time he's thinking this is of God. But you have to wonder, was Abram's, was Abram's sense of the greatness of God during these years because the promise was going to come out and be part of the greatness of God? Really, what's the promise? It's part of the design. Yeah. And in, and either way, your God is, in some sense, even though not theologically, maybe emotionally and in your heart of hearts, your God is diminished in your life. Well, of course, God is not. Uh, suggest that he may have found it necessary to delay the promise because of Abram's action. He is in no way going to be thwarted from accomplishing his purposes. And so here, Abram is 99 years old, and it says the Lord, that is Yahweh, appears to Abram. And what's the first thing he does when he appears? Okay, he tells him who he is. What we have here is we have another theophany. Okay, We've talked about this before. This is an actual visual appearance or some form of an incarnation of God before the incarnation of God at Bethlehem. Okay, And these happen periodically throughout the Old Testament, and we have one here. We'll have another one in the next chapter. Okay, So we have this theophany or this Christophany, this appearance of Christ, this appearance of God uh, to Abram. And he actually somehow in some visible form appears to Abram, and he introduces himself. Pardon? I think he's quite... I think at this point he's introducing himself because he now uses a name for God that we have not yet encountered in Genesis. Okay? What are the names of God we have encountered so far in Genesis? Okay. Uh, Yes, we've we've encountered uh, Yahweh, the I am. Okay, we've encountered that name. Okay, what other name? And that's incidentally the name by which he identified, uh, by which the narrator identifies him at the beginning of the verse when he says the Lord appeared to him. Okay, that's that's Yahweh. Okay, so he says Yahweh appeared to him. So that's one name of God we've had. What other name of God have we had? Had? I've used it twenty times in the. First part of this, pardon? El, Elohim. Elohim, okay? Elohim, okay? Uh, that is kind of the generic term for God. When we use the term God, okay, we're using our kind of generic term for God. Everybody in the world basically uses this name, God, okay? So, uh, so in the, uh, in the ancient time, kind of the generic term that the Hebrews used for God was the term Elohim. Okay, and it basically uh, Elohim is the idea of the Creator God, the God who created the heavens and the earth. Okay, and and when the name Elohim is used, it's often uh, in the context of Genesis. It's often trying to convey the idea of the God of everybody, the God over all, all the world, the the God of all creation. Okay, he's uh, when I say the God of everybody, it's not that everybody worshipped him, but he uh, he is God. Uh, over all mankind, okay? So it's this kind of generic term for God uh, that is used. And we run into that a lot uh, in the early part of Genesis, particularly the name Elohim. So we have Elohim, 
we have Yahweh or the I am. Okay. And that name is the, is the kind of the covenant God, the God of relationship, the God who enters into relationship with people. And then we've had another name. We haven't talked about it very much, but there's another name for God that we've run into. Oh, the, the name that Hagar gave him. Okay, and I wasn't really thinking about that one. Okay, uh, there is the name that Hagar gave, which is "You are the God who sees." Okay, uh, which was kind of her personal name for God, as we talked about. Okay, uh, and then what is the other name? Do you remember? Okay, it's the word for Lord, Adonai. Okay, so it's the name Adonai, which has the idea of his lordship. Okay. Now I should point out that. Though Moses, in writing the narrative, uses the name frequently Yahweh, has used it frequently throughout the narrative up to this point. It is quite clear from Exodus chapter 6 that the patriarchs did not know God by that name. Okay. So, so Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they didn't know the name Yahweh. That's very clear in, in Exodus chapter 6. Uh, God says that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob did not know him by that name. Okay, that that is a name that was introduced to Moses. Okay, now Moses uses it in the narrative when he's telling the story of Abraham and Noah and Adam and all these other uh, old ancient saints. He he uses the name Yahweh, but it's not that they that those particular people knew the name Yahweh. It's that Moses is using the name Yahweh to describe a certain or, or introduce a certain concept or aspect about God, which is at work at that point in the story. So, for example, here at the beginning of verse uh, chapter 17 in verse 1, it says the Lord appeared to Abram. He uses the name Yahweh. It's not that Abram knows the name Yahweh. He's not been introduced to that name. That name really doesn't, uh, mankind doesn't come to know that name until the Lord appears to Moses in the burning bush. Okay, But Moses now, knowing this name, uses the name as he records the earlier story. And here in chapter 17, the idea is this God of relationship, this God who is in this relationship with Abram, appeared to him. So he says Yahweh, or the Lord appeared to him. Okay, But it's not a name that Abram knew. Abram pretty much just knew God as God, Elohim. Okay, That's pretty much how he knew him. Okay. Uh, and uh, he may have also used the term Adonai or Lord in relationship to him. Okay, But he just kind of knew God as God. But now the Lord appears to Abram in this theophany and he introduces to him this special new name. And this is the name El Shaddai, God Almighty. Okay, In the Hebrew, it's El Shaddai. And it has the... It's it's a it's a difficult word. It's a very ancient word, and so the entomology of it, the origins of it, and that sort of thing are 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 pretty ambiguous. We're not really sure kind of where it came from exactly or whatever. But it carries with it the idea of just great power, almost violent power. Okay. And so when God comes now and comes to Abram and he begins this this discussion of the covenant with Abram that he's going to uh, that he's going to set before uh, Abram at this point he introduces himself as El Shaddai the God almighty and and this is a this is a new name for Abram he's not 
heard this name of God before. He hasn't known God by this name. Okay. So it is significant to us that it's introduced at this point, and then it's used several times throughout the book of Genesis, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe eight or ten times throughout the book of Genesis, used extensively in the book of Job. Okay, But it's a term that, com- uh, term that comes up uh, several times in the life of the patriarchs, particularly in the life of Jacob, this idea of El Shaddai, this great, almost violently powerful God. Okay, And he comes to Abram and he introduces himself by this new name. And now, now Abram knows him as El Shaddai. Okay. Now, one of the things that's interesting about El Shaddai is, is, that, is that it really kind of contrasts with the name Elohim. Okay. Because the name Elohim, as I said, suggests the God of creation. The God who created this whole world and put this whole world in place and who sustains the whole world and who establishes the rules and the, the rules of nature and the laws of nature. And so all this orderliness and beauty that we see around us is, is created by, by, uh, by Elohim, by the God of creation. Okay. But now God introduces himself by a new name and he, and he, and he reveals in, in introducing this name, he, re, he, he introduces Abraham really to a, a different aspect of his nature that Abram hasn't maybe thought about as much before. Okay. He's really kind of contrasting this part of his nature with the part that has to do with his aspect of creation. Okay. And there, there are a couple of old German commentators that wrote uh, many years ago, and, and they both, I, I think, bring out this sense of, of what's going on here in this name of El Shaddai and why it's so significant in the life of Abram. I want to read these two quotes to you. One is, one is from the old German uh, commentator, Dielich, and, uh, and he's talking about the contrast between Elohim, who created nature and supports it, and El Shaddai, he said, who is the God who compels nature to do what is contrary to itself and subdues it to bow and minister to grace. Beautiful description of what's at play here in the name El Shaddai. So if God is, excuse me, Rick. Okay. Okay. It's, uh, he is the God who compels nature to do what is contrary to itself and subdues it to bow and minister to grace. The idea is, yeah, he's the God of creation. But he's also the God who is so powerful that he can turn creation on its head when he has to in order to serve his purposes. Okay. And Delich's companion, Keo, uh, uh, brings out a similar thought. He says, concerning El Shaddai, he says, possessing the power to realize his promise, that is to accomplish or effectuate his power, to realize or his promise, so it's possessing the power to realize his promise, even when the order of nature presented no prospect of its fulfillment and the powers of nature were insufficient to secure it. i read that again. Possessing the power to realize his promise, even when the order of nature presented no prospect of its fulfillment, and the powers of nature were insufficient to secure. Now, when we think about that contrast 
between the name El Shaddai and the name Elohim, why do you think God now comes and introduces himself to Abraham as El Shaddai? Yeah. I don't think we should lose sight of this fact. It's, It's not just that the birth of Isaac through Abraham and Sarah was on the very perimeter of probabilities. I believe that the birth of Isaac was as miraculous as the virgin birth. It was absolutely contrary to nature. Remember what the New Testament tells us about Abram? That he was contemplating his own body as good as dead and the deadness of Sarah's womb. This is what Abram is thinking about when God comes to him in his 99th year and says to him, I am El Shaddai. I am the God who sets nature on its head. If if that is what is necessary to fulfill my purpose. And that's what Abram had to know. That the things that God was about to tell him were going to require an absolutely supernatural act on the part of God. That in its own way is as, as miraculous as the virgin birth. Yes, sir. That's true. They would have aborted both of them, wouldn't they? Yeah. Yeah, they sure would have. Yeah. Well, so God introduces himself as El Shaddai. And then he tells Abram, he says, walk before me and be blameless. Okay. Now, personally, I don't believe there's anything here in the passage that indicates that this is conditional to the covenant. It's just simply God's instruction. I am the Almighty. This is what I expect of you. I expect you to walk before me and be blameless. Now, the idea there is, those are two imperatives, but the Expositor's Bible Commentary points out that the, that the, the second imperative, to be blameless, really is kind of a consequence of the first imperative. In other words, it's that Walking before God produces blamelessness of life, Okay, is apparently the idea that's being conveyed there. And what God is telling Abram here in his 99th year is that God wants Abram to walk in this sense of the presence of God in his life. He wants him to live his life with this knowledge and awareness that everything he does and everything he thinks and everything he says and every relationship he has and every business deal he enters into and everything that happens to him, all of it is happening before the Lord. And he wants him to live his life before the Lord. And that, it, and that if he lives his life with this sense of living it in the presence of God, being constantly cognizant, of God's eye upon him and God's presence with him, that if he lives his life that way, the result in his life 
will also be the result that God desires, which is the result of blamelessness or integrity or wholeness of life. Now, we've been studying Abram for the last 25 years of his life. 24 years of his life. And I pretty much have had the impression, haven't you, that this is what he's been doing? So the question comes to my mind, why does God come to him in the 99th year of his life and tell him this? Will you need to be told that when you're 99? <laughs> Rick's nodding his head. <laughs> we will. We will. You see, we just have this perverse inclination in us as we live life that we just get careless and we get distracted and we get sloppy and we get indifferent. See, that's why it wasn't enough to just go to church for the first five years you were a Christian. Learn all the rules, learn all the things, and then just, you know, coast from there on out. There is no coasting in the spiritual life. It's an uphill battle. And as soon as you stop struggling uphill, you start going downhill, don't you? And so with Abram, even though he's 99 years old, God's not taking anything for granted here. Abram's still going to live for a number of years here. He has a lot to do yet in his life. And it's imperative that he do it with this sense of walking his life out in the sight of God. And that his whole life and that all parts of every day of his life, he have in the back of his mind at all times this thought of, my life is before the Lord. You know, what he's, what he's basically trying to tell Abram is to live his life in a way that Hagar had not lived her life. You see, God's eye had been on Hagar her whole life. She just hadn't known it until that encounter in the desert. Okay? And what God is telling Abram is, my eye is upon you and I want you to be thinking about that all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yes, yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. It's good. That's good. Yeah. I, I think that's a good point. Uh, when you think of this idea of presumptuous sin, what is presumptuous sin? sin it's, it's sin that we commit presuming we're doing right. It's exactly what Abram did with Hagar. He thought he was doing right, but it was presumptuous. And 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 that's what and that's the really the result of of not living our lives in the presence of God. When we're not when we're not really walking in the presence of God, when we're not living out our daily lives with this awareness of 
His eye is on me and He has spoken His word and He has spoken His will and I need to be cognizant of those things and I need to be thinking about those things throughout the day and throughout the week and throughout the month and throughout my life, constantly aware of His presence. When I don't do that, then I fall into presumptuous sin. Then I do all kinds of things where I think I'm doing what's right, but I'm really not. And so the question came to my mind, how do I, how do I generate, how do I cultivate in my life that life of walking in the presence of God? Well, that's where this whole idea of the spiritual disciplines comes into play. This is where the whole idea of having a devotional life Spending time regularly reading and studying and memorizing the Scriptures and, and the discipline of prayer in our lives. Learning to have dedicated times of prayer, but not only having dedicated times of prayer, but also the habit of prayer, praying without ceasing, of constantly coming to God in prayer. Okay. These are the kind of things we do that keep God's eye foremost in our mind. So that, so that as we go through life and when we're confronted in, a, in an opportunity in business or when we're presented with a temptation of lust or whatever it is, but the first thing that pops into our minds is that God's eye is upon me and that my life is being lived before Him. And that's where these spiritual disciplines come into play. And when we ignore these things, when we ignore the fellowship of believers, and when we ignore faithfulness in His Word, and when we ignore faithfulness in prayer, when we let those things slide in our lives, we lose sight of our life being lived in the presence of God. And when we lose sight of our life being lived in the presence of God, we commit presumptuous sins and we fail to live a blameless life, a life of integrity and fullness before God. And so this is God's injunction to Abram to live this kind of a life. And then, he sa- and then it says, uh, he says uh, in verse 2, he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face. So God now kind of tells him what, he's, what this whole encounter is about. And this encounter is about establishing my covenant. And I think King James says, I will give my covenant. Now, this is different than what happened in chapter 15. You remember in chapter 15 that God cut a covenant. He does not say here that I will cut my covenant. He has already cut the covenant. In other words, He has already made the contract. He did that in chapter 15. Remember the story of the bloody alley, the splitting of the carcasses, and God passing between the carcasses. God cut the covenant at that point. What He's saying here now is I will give my covenant or I will establish my covenant. So this is not a new covenant. It's not a different covenant. It's not even really restating what happened in chapter 15. What God is saying, and you saw this later in the chapter, the part where we're not getting that today, but later in the chapter we, uh, we saw that God said, by this season next year, Sarah will have a baby. Remember when we read that later in the chapter? Okay. The point that God is making is, this is the point at which I effectuate the covenant. I made that covenant with you back 13 years ago when we cut the covenant, when I walked the bloody alley. Okay? I cut the covenant back now, but now things are going to start happening. Now I give my covenant. Now I make my covenant. Now I establish my covenant. Now is when things are going to start happening. 
And so, Abram, this is what we need to do. You need to have a sign from me. And I need to have a sign from you. And Sarai needs a sign from me. And so there are three signs in this passage. The first sign is a sign that God gives to Abram that now is the time that we're going to put this into play, that we're going to effectuate this covenant. And what is the sign he gives to Abram? A new name. He gives to Abram a new name, and we'll get to this next week. When he gets to Abram's part in this covenant, when he gets down to verse 9 and he says, As for you, the covenant, or the sign of the covenant that God will give to, or that Abram will give to God is what? Circumcision. Okay? It's the, it's the thing that Abram does that says to God, I'm in this thing. Okay? And then we get to the part of Sarah, and, and God says to Abram, as for Sarah, and what is the sign that God gives to Sarah? So there are these three signs. It's the signs going both ways. Couple of them, God giving signs to Abram and Sarai, and giving a sign to God. So, so this is God's promise, and He says, "I will exceedingly multiply you." And here is this guy who's got one kid. And and he's and it's been kind of I think I'm reading between the lines here, but I think it's been a somewhat unsatisfying Now else did I come to I am going to set nature on the and I am going to vassal. It's kind of like it's kind of like Abram is saying what Mary Mary said when the angel came to her. Remember what she said? She said, "Lord, let it be done to me whatever you want." And I think that's what Abram's doing at this point. He's getting on his face. Now he's gonna have a little argument with God later about this whole thing. It won't last very long. But but Abram's falling on his face and he's saying, "El Shaddai, you are the Lord. Whatever you say." And we will see that he carries that out. His, his personal responsibility in this whole thing, he carries it out that day. Okay. Well, next week we'll pick it up here and we'll just go on. We're, we're probably not going to get into the study sheet I handed you last week, uh, but we'll, we'll get as far as we can get. Okay. Yeah.